Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. All right, if you have just joined us this week, uh, we're in week two of a series that we're doing called Love Story. And uh, we're exploring different themes from a book of the Bible known as the Song of Songs, or what it's often referred to as as the Song of Solomon. Uh, If you don't know anything about the Song of Songs, just real quick uh, recap, it's an ancient book of Hebrew poetry, and it describes a love story between two people uh, who we've been referring to as Shulamith and Solomon. And uh, it kind of walks through different themes of their love story, and you discover... um, that the, the relationship uh, is emotional, it's romantic, it's intimate, sometimes it's physical. And uh, as we're going through this series, we're going to pull out different topics. Last week we talked about attraction, but some of the other topics we're going to cover are uh, conflict, God-honoring sex, lifelong love. And today, if you've uh, picked that up from the video, we're going to talk about courtship. Now, I can imagine as soon as I say the word courtship, uh, you might wonder yourself, uh, that sounds pretty archaic, it sounds pretty old school. Uh, when you hear the word courtship, maybe images come to your mind of uh, Anna Green Gables or uh, the Elizabethan era. Uh, but before you throw me under the bus, let me just give you a real quick definition of what I mean by courtship. Okay, so we're not hitching up the buggies. This is the definition of courtship. Uh, A courtship is basically a period of time when a couple develops a romantic relationship, especially with a view to marriage. So courtship is that in-between time between singleness and between marriage, okay, but it has a specific purpose. It has a specific long-term goal, and the long-term goal of courtship is ultimately to move towards marriage. So that's what we're just talking about. It's a very general definition of what we're talking about. Um, but I don't know about you, but has, has any of you noticed how courtship has become more complex in the day and age in which we live? I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. I'm an 80s man, 80s child, latter half of the 80s. And uh, when we talked about courtship and relationships and all that, it was a little bit more simple. Okay, back, back then there were, there were basically two categories, uh, maybe three. Uh, there was, uh, you, were, you went on dates with people, okay? And then you were going out. That was it, right? You, know, you went on dates, you are going out. And so going out meant it was like a, a special relationship. Uh, you would ask somebody out, which really didn't make any sense, right? Because going out where, right? It didn't really make any sense. But that's what we called it. So you had dates, you were going out. So I was talking to my daughter, uh, one of my daughters. And I, I, she was, a number of weeks ago, she was describing to me what the courtship landscape kind of looks like now. And I just got so confused. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through it this morning, and you can join me in my confusion. So, okay, there's level one. Level one of the courtship experience now uh, is the crush, okay? So the crush is you're crushing on each other, uh, you're liking each other, right? So during the crush stage, you might text each other, you might talk to each other, you might even go out for coffee, that sort of a thing. So the, the crush is level one. Beyond the crush, there is the thing. Seriously, that's what it's called. It's called the thing, okay? So... Rob and Karen, they're kind of a thing right now, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a non-committed relationship, but it's a committed relationship, uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, so it's an unofficial, official relationship, okay? Now, after the thing, you progress to official dating. So official dating is when you actually ask, 
will you date me, okay? And uh, sometimes parents get involved in this experience. Uh, it does in our case. If you're going to date somebody, you've got to ask me. Uh, but there's the dating level, right? And this is where the relationship becomes official. It moves from being on a thing to dating. For me, I don't know the difference, okay? Like, well, what's the difference? Because I ask, okay, well, if, if I'm in a thing with somebody and I go and start a thing with somebody else, does she have a right to be mad? And it's like, yeah, of course. Well, it's, but, it, but it's not official. So why can't I... Why can't I have multiple things? But you can't. You can only have one thing, okay? That's all, that's all I've discovered. And I always say to my kids, I say, okay, listen, if it looks like a fish and it smells like a fish, it's probably a fish, okay? There's no difference between a thing and dating in my mind. But apparently there is. Okay, now you move from beyond dating and you do that for a long period of time and eventually you get to engagement, okay? Engagement, you know what engagement is, right? Now it's, it's like when there's, like, there's a special moment, there's a ring, uh, there's lots of selfies, a drone plane flies in, takes pictures, right? Friends pop out of the woods, right? And there's champagne and all these sorts of things. It goes public on Facebook. That's the engagement. That's the moment, right? It's this public official ask to get to engagement. Of course, you have to talk to dad, right? Right? Okay. Um, but that's, that's engagement. But what I've discovered is that there is a gap between dating and engagement, okay? And I call that gap engaged to be engaged, Okay? So they're not officially engaged, but, okay, the, the, the wedding dress is bought and picked out. The venue's already booked. The ring is purchased, but they're not officially engaged yet, and yet all these things have already been done, okay? Pinterest has been slaughtered to get all of these ideas, okay? There's this engaged to be engaged, and then there's engaged, and then there's marriage. So I got to thinking. I said, okay, wait a minute. That engaged to be engaged is like the thing, right? So, so what you got is you got thing one. And you've got thing two. And then you've got engagement and marriage. So I decided I was going to map it out this morning. This is my brain. This is how I think it works. Okay, so i got to, okay. Put, okay, put, put that graphic up on the screen. There it is. Okay, yeah. So you've got single. You've got the crush. Then you've got thing one. Right? Then you've got dating. And then you've got thing two. Then you've got engaged. And then you get married. And this is courtship in 2018, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome. Okay. Now, uh... Of course, on this diagram are not other things, uh, other items, such as hooking up is not on there. Uh, moving in together isn't on there. And, and this is because today our, our focus is going to be on biblical courtship. We want to discover some things about what the Bible teaches about courtship and about this specific uh, era in a person's life. And uh, what we're going to discover is the Bible's view on courtship it is actually very unique from the world's view of courtship. Um, it, it actually runs countercultural. Did you know that Jesus was the greatest counterculturalist of all time? That Jesus' teachings were very, very countercultural. Uh, oftentimes we think that he's mainstream. Well, he only became mainstream centuries later. But in his day, Jesus, when it came to sex, when it came to romance, when it came to relationships, when it came to thought life, all these things, Jesus was a counterculturalist. And what we're going to discover as we go through today when we talk about courtship, it does run a little bit against the grain of culture when it comes to uh, these types of relationships. So today, if you have a bulletin, pull out the notes. You can track along. We are going to be looking at chapter 2 in Song of Songs. We're going to start at chapter 2 and verse 5. We're going to work uh, two, 2 verse 8. And we're going to work our way through to chapter 3 and verse 5. Not in chronological order. Now, this section that we're looking at, a lot of scholars would say that, that this describes the season in the couple's life before they were married. That you actually get a little bit of a glimpse what courtship kind of looked like for them and in the relationship. So uh, what I want to do is I want to focus on their exchange and I want to extrapolate, I want to pull out three realities of courtship from the relationship of Shulamith and, and Solomon. And I think they have something 
uh, to teach us this morning. Uh, so here's the first reality uh, when it comes to courtship. First reality is this, is embrace preparation. Embrace preparation. So I'm going to start in the middle of this section. Solomon basically shows up. He's arrived at Shulamit's house, and he starts talking to her through the window. And here's what he says. He says this. He says, see, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. Now, what you discover in this text is he's describing a specific season of the year. Do you pick up what that season is? Springtime, right? And, and what he's saying is, is that he is leaving behind an old season, and he's moving towards a new season. Winter is gone. Springtime is here. And, and one of the things we learn uh, in this text is that there we will go through different seasons in relationships. And every season of relationship that we go through is different than the one before. And one of the things we also have to learn is that we have to discover what is it that God has us has for us in this specific season that we find ourselves. So uh, the season of winter, for example, is different than the season of spring. The season of winter, as we know from this weekend, snowfall, uh, it's a time of preparation. It's a time of, of rootedness. When plants time, it's time for them to dig deeper. It's a time of, of storing up energy. But springtime is very different. Springtime is, uh, is when everything blossoms. It's when life explodes. Springtime is when a huge amount of energy gets expended. Life emerges. Growth happens. In your lifetime, you will go through different relationship seasons. And each season that you find yourself in is going to uh, require something different from you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, also in the wisdom literature of Solomon. Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us of this. It says, there is a time for everything, and there is a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot. So the question is, do you know what season you are in? And is there something that God wants to do in you and through you during this season of life that you find yourself in? Are you discerning it? And are you living it out? Some of you right now, you might be going through a season of winter in your relationships. Uh, and it's in this season that God is, is preparing you and getting you ready for springtime. Uh, we talked about this last week. We said, hey, listen, a great relationship isn't about finding the right kind of person. A great relationship begins by becoming the right kind of person. Great relationships always begin with you, not with the other person. Now, I I'm not sure what your season of winter might look like for you today. Um, maybe, maybe this is the season where God wants to teach you to trust in him as your source of life rather than finding it from jumping from relationship to relationship and finding it in somebody else. Or, or maybe this is a season of life where God wants to, wants to deepen your spiritual roots so that when you enter into a relationship, you have a spiritual foundation that's going with you. Or, or maybe uh, this is a season of life where you need to process and walk through different hurts that you had from the past so that you're not bringing those hurts with you into the new relationship. Or maybe it's just really, really practical. I mean, maybe, maybe for this season of life, you just need to get stuff done. You just need to be responsible. Maybe this is a season of life where you just got to finish school, or a season of life you just got to pay off debts, or, or you just got to get things done so that those things aren't coming with you as you enter into this huge responsibility of a relationship. 
So do you know what God has for you in this season of winter? I mean, here's the thing to remember. I think this is really important. A good winter makes for a great spring. Listen, I married a farmer's daughter, okay? I know a little bit about farmer, farming from them. I know that when there's lots of snow at wintertime, farmers get really, really excited. And the reason why is because when it comes to springtime, there's tons of moisture in the soil. It's going to be great for planting. But if you have a lousy winter and there's no precipitation, it's going to be a lousy spring. A good winter always leads to a great springtime. But, you know, maybe for you today, this morning, maybe winter has passed, and maybe you're in that springtime scenario, okay? You're, you're, you're begun a relationship. Flowers are blooming. Doves are cooing. Well, did you know that in springtime, you also need to embrace preparation? Because here's the thing. Springtime could lead to yet another season, and that other season might be relationship. So what's important, I think, in this season, if you're in springtime, is don't neglect everything you learned in wintertime. And also, ask the same question. What do I need to do to prepare myself for the next season that's coming around the corner? So that's what I want to talk about for the next two points. Um, let's talk about the season of springtime. How do you prepare during the season of springtime? Well, here's the second point. The second point is this, is expect infatuation. Expect infatuation. Let's look at verses 8 to 9, okay? This is the very beginning of the text, the very beginning of the passage. She is seeing Solomon show up, and here's what she says. She says, listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved, he's like a gazelle or a young stag. Look there, he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Okay, clearly, they, they are infatuated with each other, okay? Did you notice how she describes him? He, he's like a young horse, galloping, leaping across the mountains. Okay, it's like something from a Bollywood movie, okay? And then when he arrives, I mean, he, he arrives, and he, he doesn't even get to her door. He just, he just stops, and he stares at her through the window, through the lattice. Okay, he's not, he's not stalking, he's not creeping, he is just admiring her. He is a tongue-tied, doe-eyed fool looking at his gal through the window as he walks up to the house. What are they experiencing? They're experiencing infatuation. Now, we have other terms to describe infatuation, uh, star-crossed lovers, right? lovesick puppies, uh, spellbound, enamored. But this is what they're going through in this early season of the relationship. Did you know that there's actually a, there's actually a scientific term that's used to describe this lovesickness that they're going through. Uh, it's called limerence. Limerence. Um, there was a psychologist, her name is Dorothy, Dorothy Tanoff. She came up with this term. She actually in, dedicated her entire professional career to studying lovesickness. And she in, interviewed thousands upon thousands of people who were truly, madly, and deeply in love. So her findings were completely research-based. They weren't based on Twilight novels or Ed Sheeran songs, okay? She actually did real research with real people. And here are some of the symptoms that she discovered. Oh, it's up here, okay. Uh, number one, a literal heartache, a pressure in the chest relieved by sighing. <gasps> okay, uh, Number two, a longing to have one's love reciprocated. I love you. You should love me back. I want to love you back. Okay. Uh, number three, an intense fear of rejection. But what if he doesn't love me? Okay. Number four, drastic, almost bipolar mood swings. Any of you with children in love? Okay. Uh, number five, a passion that resistance or adversity only serve to increase. So you try and stop it. Oh, I'm pushing 
harder. Okay, and finally, intrusive thinking about the one we love. 30% of one's time at first, okay? 30% of your time at first love, you're thinking about that person all the time. But then there comes a second wave of limerence, something approaching 100% of our thinking. We just can't get that person out of our mind. See, when you're, when you're infatuated, when you have limerence, you are preoccupied. You are, you are distracted. And, and you do things that you normally would not do. You leap over mountains like a gazelle. You play peekaboo through the shutters. You do crazy sorts of things. Um, when I started dating Karen, who's now my wife, uh, there was a bit of infatuation at the beginning. I will admit that. I was a Twitter-pated fool. There was nothing I would not do to spend time with her. Uh, these are the days, though. Okay, late 80s. So there's no mobile phones. There's no email. Uh, there's no texting. Uh, we had three options. You could either see each other face to face. You could write them a letter by mail, okay? Or number three is you could phone them. Now, Karen lived on a farm 20 miles outside of town. I did not own a car. I biked out to see her once, and that was the end of it, okay? Uh, <laughs> after that, it was strictly phone calls, okay? But, I mean, the thing is, back in that day, you lived in the house with one phone, and most people didn't have the luxury even of a portable phone. So you had this phone, and you had this, like, 10-foot cable, right? And if you wanted to have a private, intimate, romantic conversation with a lady, you had to find a room, and you had to drag that phone to its maximum cable length, get in the closet and talk, okay? That was my experience. And the thing that you discovered is, when you only have one phone in your family, you have to share that phone. So if you're on the phone for more than five minutes, your parents are like, get off the phone. Someone might be calling. Okay, and you're hanging it up, right? So the time to talk was always late at night because nobody calls after 10, right? That'd be just rude. So after 10 o'clock, we would, we would talk to each other on the phone. But the thing is, I mean, we would do it on school nights and we would do it late into the night, like sometimes one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. I mean, we'd be talking and we wouldn't even really saying anything. Sometimes we'd just sit there and hear each other breathe. It's like, oh, yeah, it's my love. <sighs> right? And she's just, she's just breathing. And then sometimes, I mean, I never did this, but she would fall asleep on me. Right? And then I'd be like, are you sleepy? What? No. No, I'm here. Okay? And then there came that moment. It's like, okay, I am going to be in trouble tomorrow morning. I am going to be so gassed and so tired. And so you got to hang up. Right? And it's like, okay, you know what? It's really late. i got to hang up. And she's like, okay, well, you hang up. I said, okay, no, no, you hang up first. <laughs> No, you hang up. No, you hang up, okay? Okay, on the count of three, we're going to hang up. You ready? One, two, three. Are you still there? <laughs> right? And then eventually, okay, let's hang up. And then you hang up and you go to bed, okay? That, my friends, that is limerence. That is infatuation. That is what we're talking about. Anybody ever experienced that before? Okay. Crazy Twitter-pated fools. And the thing about infatuation is it's great. It's lovely. It's wonderful. But here's the thing, a lasting relationship cannot be built upon infatuation. No more than your body can survive on Twinkies and orange Crush cream soda, okay? I mean, they might taste delicious, they might give you a sugar spike for just a moment, but they will not provide you the nourishment you need in life for the long haul. As a matter of fact, if that's your diet, you will have diabetes by the age of 30, okay? Infatuation occurs early on in a relationship. But the thing about infatuation is, is it never lasts forever. Eventually, infatuation comes crashing headfirst into reality. I mean, it might come with your first fight. It might come with your, your first failure. It might come with your first 
flatulence. I don't know. But there's some point in your marriage, in your relationship, where infatuation just dissolves, comes heading headfirst into reality. And this is why some relationships die prematurely. And it's because some people assume that when, you know, infatuation is going to last forever. And this is, this is normal reality for a relationship. And so when infatuation dies, they say, well, there must be something wrong with the relationship. They end the relationship and get into another relationship where there's more infatuation when that dies. And so they go from relationship, relationship, relationship because of this false assumption about infatuation. Infatuation is never intended to last. Now, infatuation ultimately will not sustain a marriage. Infatuation will not sustain you through job loss. Infatuation will not sustain you through raising children. Infatuation will not sustain you through cancer. There's only one core value that is going to sustain you through all of that, and it's what we would call sacrificial love. True, Christ-centered, agape love. It's this love where you lay down your life for each other, where you serve one another, where you sacrifice for one another, where you commit to one another, through richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do you part. So when you live in the love of Christ and you know his sacrificial love and you allow Christ to live in you through his sacrificial love working through you into your relationship, when you do all of that, this is what will ultimately sustain a marriage. It's got to be done through sacrificial love, not just infatuation. And so, friends, let me just tell you, especially those of you who are in dating mode, okay, it is important not to let infatuation control your relationship. So can I just, can I just recommend that in courtship, just take your foot off the gas, okay? Ease up on the infatuation just a bit by doing a couple of things. First of all, slow your pace. Let me just recommend, you take time to build the relationship don't be in such a hurry. Hey, listen, if you go out on two dates with a guy, don't go home and start planning your wedding, okay? And, and on the third date, don't sit down with him and try and name your children, okay? That is just a bad idea. You will scare him. He will run away, okay? Don't even bring these things up. Just take a chill pill. Don't make a bunch of thoughtless, emotional decisions early on in a relationship. Slow your pace. Take your foot off the gas. But here's the other thing. Slow your solitude, and I talked about this last week. Don't abandon your friends and disappear from the world. You will get to know a person better in groups than you will getting to know that person one-on-one. -on -one. And here's the thing. Infatuation, uh, love, it's blind. Your friends will help you see past your infatuation. Love is blind, but your friends might not be, especially if they are really good friends. So date in groups. Date with other people. And as an alternative, I suggest that you invest your energy in getting to know each other. To build your friendship, to, to actually get to know, really get to know the person you're courting. You actually pick this up in verse 14. Let's read the text. Here's what it says. He says, My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So what's he saying? Basically, he's saying, hey, listen, I want you to come out of the house, show me your face, and talk to me. And, and notice what he wants to see more than anything else. He, he, he mentions it twice in this little dialogue. He wants to see her face. You see, the face was very, very important to the Hebrews. The face represented a person's presence. This is why we use this term as Christians. We say, I want to seek God's face, okay? 
The face of a person was the knowledge of a person. The face reveals a person's character. It reveals a person's personality. It reveals a person's emotion. Solomon wanted to see her face. He wanted to know her. Now, getting to know each other should ultimately be the ultimate goal of courtship. So it's a good time to kind of dig deep and ask questions. It's a good time, you know, hey, what makes you joyful? What is it that brings joy in your life? How, how did you, when did God first become real to you? Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. What are, what are your biggest fears? What are some of the weaknesses you have? What are some temptations you have? Tell me about the most meaningful moments in your life. These are the kinds of questions in a dating relationship, a courting relationship, you should be asking. And... Bradley Lehman, man of mystery. Okay. Um, another fox is your responsibility with your time, talents, and treasure. Listen, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I see this one getting tr uh, couples in trouble all the time. Bad stewardship now will cost your relationship later. Here's another fox, lack of consideration. Listen, the way you treat each other now and the way you talk about each other now will one day set a pattern for your relationship in the future. So if you deal with the foxes now, you will enjoy the fruit later. But I want to focus now on one particular fox. And this is one fox that I've seen create a lot of damage in relationships. Uh, it has led to a lot of heartache, a lot of shame. And the fox in particular that I want to talk about is, is this fox of sexual impurity. Okay? When you look at the text, this might actually specifically be what's in view here for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, remember in chapter 1, uh, if you were here last week, she talked about her vineyard, right? And she talked about the fact that she was dark-skinned and she was ashamed of her dark skin. And the reason why she was dark-skinned is because she had to work in her brother's vineyards and she couldn't take care of her own vineyard. 
And when she was talking about her own vineyard, what was she referring to? She was referring to her body. So because she was out there doing all this work, she couldn't care for her body. The vineyard represents her body. And in this text here, it says that the vineyards are all in bloom. Both of their vineyards are in bloom. It's referring to their bodies. So in other words, what they're saying is their bodies are charged up. Their bodies are activated. They are ready to go. And they've got to do something to chase these little foxes away. See, here's the thing. Shulamith, Solomon, they loved each other. They were attracted to each other. They were infatuated with each other. But they understood as well that God had a purpose and God had a place for sex. Okay? They understood God's purpose for sex. Sex was God's idea. He, God's the one who designed our body. God's the one who gave us attraction. God's the one who gave us a sex drive. God is not surprised that we are physically attracted to other people, and particularly the person that we love. That's not a surprise to him. But God designed it to be a beautiful, pleasurable, intimate experience between a man and a woman. Okay? That was God's purpose for sex. But God also had a plan for sex. And they understood this. There was a place for it. Um, because of its beauty and its sacredness, God designed it to be experienced within a lifelong, committed, covenant, sacred relationship. In other words, the place for sex was for marriage. And they understood that. So Shulamith and Solomon, even though their bodies were blooming, okay, that's what they're saying, they were struggling with it. And they needed to keep the foxes out of the vineyard. This is actually reinforced next in, in chapter 3. Uh, if, you, if you read the end of chapter 2, okay, I'm just going to quickly say, you read the end of chapter 2, Shulamith basically says, okay, Solomon, it's time to go away. Run away, young stag, go away, and turn away and run. So he goes away, okay? And then he gets into chapter 3, and when you read chapter 3, it's really weird, okay? I'm not going to read it all, but essentially, uh, she has this very vivid dream experience, okay? And she's wandering through the city. She's looking for Solomon. She talks to, like, the town guard. Where is he? Finally, she finds him. She takes him home to her mother's house and to her mother's bedroom. Okay, so it's a little light on the details, but let's just say it's 50 shades of Solomon kind of dream, okay? <laughs> but after her dream, she wakes up, right? She has one of those dreams. She wakes up, and this is what she says. This is how she responds. She says this. She says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. What's she saying here? Well, she's saying, don't arouse your love. And, and, and she's referring more specifically to an intimate, physical, sexual love, because she just had this dream, okay? She's saying, there is a purpose for it, but there's also a place for it. So she's saying, leave it dormant. Don't wake it up until that special day, until that wedding day. And, and it's interesting, you actually see this same refrain, these same verses appear several times throughout the Song of Solomon. It's like this little warning, like going, okay, warning, be careful, okay? In other words, what she's saying is, hey, don't keep stoking the fire of passion. If there's a spark, don't add kindling. If the kindling's on fire, don't add sticks. If the sticks are on fire, don't add wood, all right? Don't add logs. Don't keep building this fire, because if you keep building this fire, ultimately, it's going to get out of control. And they're saying, listen, there's a season for that. And the season for that is the next season. It's not this season. And the next season is the season of marriage. So here's the thing. Just because you're dating someone or just because you're engaged to someone does not give you a backstage pass to the vineyard. Do you know what I'm saying? 
listen, I know from personal experience in my life that purity can be challenging, particularly in the culture in which we live. We live in a culture that minimizes sex and just makes it into a biological function. Or we, or, or we live in a culture where it says, that, you know, sex is totally okay as long as you just love somebody. Okay, this is the culture we live in. And it's also hard to try and live this way when sometimes you feel like your body is fighting against you. Okay? I get it. I understand that. And this is why I love the Bible. This is why I love God's Word. Because it doesn't pretend. It doesn't say that it's going to be easy. It doesn't say that it's not going to be a struggle. It portrays the struggle right there before your eyes. Shulamith and Solomon experienced the same struggle that some of you yourselves might be having. So here's the question. How do you keep sexual purity in your courting relationship? Now, I'm going to just dive deep for a little bit here. I'm going to get really, really practical with this question. I'm going to talk really, really straight with you. And the reason why I'm talking straight with you is because I've been there and because I love you. Okay? And so I want to do whatever I can to help you go through this and navigate this season in your life. Here are two ways to deal with the temptation towards sexual purity. Number one, flee temptation. Just flee temptation. Here's the thing. It is easier to flee temptation than it is to fight temptation. The best way to fight temptation is just avoid it altogether. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young man, okay? So Paul is speaking to him about the issues that he faces around him. Here's what he says. He says, listen, Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Temptation, it's like a school bully who's twice your size, and he's waiting at the corner of the schoolyard for you on your way home. You could walk up to the school bully and try to prove something, but it's probably easier if you just took another way home, okay? Listen, if you struggle with alcohol abuse, stay out of the clubs. If you struggle with lust, don't eat lunch at Hooters, okay? It's just good common sense. Do you know what I'm saying? So there is no cowardice in fleeing. If, if you find yourself entering into a situation where you know, if I walk into this situation, I am going to be in trouble, the Bible gives you a really great prescription. Turn around, walk away, get yourself out of there, avoid the temptation. Don't try and prove something. There's a story in the Old Testament about Potiphar's wife, and, and she was hitting on Joseph. You remember that story? What did he do? Did he stay in the house and just kind of keep fighting her off? No. When she tried to hit on him, she said, hey, buddy, you're cute. Let's go to bed. What did he do? He turned around. He booked it out of the house. He ran away so fast, she was left clinging to his jacket. Okay? He ran away. He fled. So sometimes the best way to deal with temptation is just to run away, flee temptation. Now, what would that look like? Well, here's the second thing I, I recommend you do with temptation is fence temptation. Fence temptation. You need to find a way to make temptation off limits to you and the one you're courting. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 to 13. Here's what it says. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Because no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. I'm going to stop there. How do you avoid temptation? Well, you do everything you can to be careful that you don't fall in the first place. Listen, when you're driving on the highway through the mountains, as you go along and there's these you know, treacherous cliffs going over the edge, what do they do to keep you from going over the edge? They put up these guardrails, right? These big metal guardrails so that if your vehicle hits it, it bounces back and it stays on the road and you do not die. Okay, did you notice that they don't put the guardrails right next to the edge of the road? As a matter of fact, they back the guardrails up several feet 
away from the edge so that if you hit the guardrail and you still go over a little bit, you still don't fall off the edge. They want to keep you as far back from the danger as is possible. So to avoid falling in temptation, can I just recommend is that you put up guardrails. In other words, create protective boundaries in your relationships. So um, the boundary shouldn't be, well, we're just not going to have sex. Rather, the boundary needs to be much back farther from this. See, the problem is that we put up boundaries right next to the temptation, and it's no wonder that we eventually just fall over into the temptation. You've got to put a fence around the vineyard to keep all the foxes. Well, how do you do that? Let me give you some very, very practical advice. How do you put up fences? Number one, if you're starting a relationship with someone, be clear about your boundaries early on in that relationship. Be clear right at the get-go if you can. Make it very clear about your personal values around sexuality. Because here's the thing. You cannot assume that you are both on the same page about this. You cannot. Um, and, and let me say this. If you don't feel that you can talk about this with the person you're dating, you're with the wrong person. If that person cannot respect your boundaries, you're with the wrong person. If that person keeps pushing your boundaries, you're probably with the wrong person, right? Because you don't want to be in a relationship with someone you can't be honest with, someone who doesn't respect your values, and someone who doesn't share your values. And here's the thing, I, I, and, and this is from, again, years of experience working with young people, uh, working in, in counseling situations. If you aren't upfront about your boundaries, there is a greater chance of you stepping over the edge of your boundaries if you're not upfront and clear about it. And let me tell you from personal experience, uh, once you cross a line physically with a partner, it's easier to cross that line the next time around because you've already crossed over it. So the first bit of advice is this. Be upfront about your boundaries and keep your boundaries, whatever those are. Um, here's the second thing. second bit of advice is to create a clear set of boundaries. Do you know what your boundaries are? Have you, have you ever sat down and said, okay, this is I will not do. This is the line I, I, I will not cross it. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, okay, I'm, I'm speaking specifically to you, and you take the Bible seriously, you need to figure out what those boundaries are. Being a youth pastor for 12 years, the number one question I got asked all the time, can you guess what it is? You probably can. How far is too far? Hey, where do I draw the line? What's, what's in and what's out? What's the right thing to do? Um, let me give you some very quick principles from Scripture because we're running out of time here. Here's some things for your consideration. Ephesians 5.3 says this, that there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality in your relationship. So not even a hint, not even a tiny little titch of it. There should be no little bit of sexual immorality in your relationship, in your courting relationship. Here's something else. Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, he says, Don't, looking at a person lustfully is out of bounds. So it's not even that you're doing it, it's just that you're thinking about it. Jesus says, no, no, don't even think about it. Don't even, don't even go there, Right? And in another place, Jesus taught this. He said that you are better off drowning than causing somebody else to stumble. Those are strong words from Jesus. But you are better off drowning, taking a millstone, tying around the neck, throwing yourself in the bottom of the sea than causing somebody else to stumble. And this is what I usually say to young people. Um, and when I was in my days of courting, I had to say this to myself. These are the principles. So if you're wondering, where, how, you know, how far is too far? Where should I set up my boundaries? Here's some starter questions. Number one, can you do this without lusting? Can I get involved in this intimate activity without lusting? Um, not unless you're a Vulcan like Spock. Uh, number two, can you do this and not cause this other person to stumble? And number three, is there even a hint of sexual immorality involved in this? 
okay? So let me just give some really practical, really, really practical guardrails, uh, boundaries as we close off here. Here's one thing to consider. Guard your thought life. Because here's the thing, where the body goes where the mind leads. Number two, avoid compromising positions that will make it easy for you to fall. Okay, so don't park in cars, okay? Don't spend time in each other's bedrooms. Don't be alone in a house together. Don't go away on weekends together. And please don't move in together. Listen, if you think you can move in together and not have sex, you are a better person than I am, okay? Uh, because I couldn't do that. You're about as smart as a Russian curler taking steroids. All right, you're going to get into trouble. Number three, okay, so guard your thought life, avoid compromising positions. I'm glad I woke you up there. Number three, keep four feet on the floor. Keep four feet on the floor. Do the mental imagery, okay? Bodies lying on top of each other, not good news, okay? Just not good news. It doesn't go anywhere good. Uh, number four, keep your hands to yourself. Um, listen, when the Bible speaks about the laying on of hands, that's not what it had in mind, okay? <laughs> You can be handsome, but you should not be handsy, okay? Um, number five, uh, yeah, keep, uh, I'll just say, keep your own tongue in your mouth, because um, you know where French kissing leads, it sends you to Bible school, so don't do that, okay? And listen, I say all this from a heart of, of somebody who's, who's lived in the trenches. Listen, when Karen and I were... were um, courting and dating, and then even when we were engaged to be married, we, we felt the struggle. We felt the struggle very real. Um, so we had to set up these boundaries in our lives just to, to ensure that we could walk in faithfulness before God. That was our heart, ultimately, at the end of the day. Um, we struggled so much that sometimes if we were watching a movie, we had to sit on separate couches, okay? We struggled so much after a while that we, we didn't even just sit on separate cultures. We brought her sister along with us on all our dates so that she could sit in the room with us, okay? Now, you might think I'm a weak fool. I'm just not a weak fool. I'm a careful fool. And I said to myself, I just want to put a fence around all temptation because I want to walk in purity and I want to do the right thing at the end of the day. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and when I do premarital counseling with a couple, I always ask them this question. I ask them, listen, I, I, have, to, I have to ask you this question because I know you love Jesus, and I know you want to serve him faithfully. Um, do you struggle together physically? Are, are, basically, are you having sex together? And um, sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no. They're always honest with me, okay? Um, and if they say yes, then I say to them, okay, uh, do you know that Jesus that's not his will for you in this season of life, that there's a purpose and there's a place for sexual activity. And inevitably, they all say, yeah, absolutely. I said, okay, do you want, I, 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 I want to ask you to stop having sex until you get married. I want to ask you to walk in obedience and walk in purity to Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Inevitably, 100%, all of them say yes because they're, they're filled with such shame and they're filled with such the struggle and it's real and all that and they want to do that. And so I, so I say, okay, do you know that Jesus loves you? Absolutely. Okay. Do you know that Jesus is willing to forgive you? They say, absolutely. I said, well, let me lead you in a prayer of forgiveness right now. And I lead them in a prayer of forgiveness. And they ask Christ for forgiveness. They ask Christ to cleanse them from all their sins. And he does. Because his mercies are new every morning. And his faithfulness is great. And then I ask them, well, are you willing to repent and turn from your sins? And they say, absolutely. I want to I turn away from darkness. I want to turn towards light. Because I don't want the foxes to eat the blossoms in my life right now. I want to enjoy the fruit later on. 
And then I say to them, okay, here's two things you need to do. Number one, you need to set up some boundaries. And they do. Inevitably, they do. And the second thing I say is you need to set up some accountability. You need people in your life who are going to hold you accountable in this season of your life. So those are all the things that I say to them. And for those of you who are in the courting situation in your life, those are all the things I say to you today. God has great things for you in the next season. Are you preparing for that in this season, ultimately? And will you walk in purity? And so today, you can do that. You can, you can have that conversation. And you know what? There are notes, uh, there are questions in your notes here today that you can ask. Um, I've created some personal questions. We've been doing this every week that you could ask yourself personally, and I think that's important. But there are also some relationship questions that I, I recommend. Date nights, I've been asking, you know, consider going on a date night together. Every week during this series, sit down, ask those relationship types of questions. And so I recommend that you, uh, you do that, that you take advantage of this. Do some homework and see what God will do in this next season that you find yourself in. Okay, let me pray for you, and, uh, and then we're going to close. Father, thank you um, for this great gift that you've given to us, that it's all your idea. We thank you, God, that you love every person here, no matter who they are, what they've done, where they come from. Thank you that you invite all of us into relationship with you. And thank you, God, that you have a design, a beautiful design that you welcome us to, to enter into and be part of. And so, God, would you, um, for those here who are courting, uh, I pray that you would help them with the struggle. And I pray that, God, they would be able to walk in purity and, and in righteousness. Uh, God, even for those families here, who, for those here who are married, the struggle continues even in marriage. And I pray as well for them, that, Lord, you would strengthen them, uh, that it would be uh, there would be purity in their relationship towards each other and towards others. Um, and so, God, we love you. We thank you uh, today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.